Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. Guess what this isn't? This is not another podcast on impeachment. We've already got one of those. The Nerdcast has gone daily during the Senate impeachment trial. But as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on this week, this month, this year, that you Nerdcast listeners care a lot about. So for our regular weekly episode today, we are going to jump onto the campaign trail for an update on the big fight roiling the Democratic race just days before the Iowa caucuses. 20 former Vice President Joe Biden is demanding an apology from Senator Bernie Sanders for circulating what he called a doctored video, misconstruing his record on Social Security. But first, we're going to bring you a big health care story you might have missed amid all the campaign and impeachment news this week. A new challenge to Obamacare is winding through the federal court system, but the Supreme Court says it won't hear the case until after the 2020 election. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters. As always, a quick note, we're taping this on Thursday, January 23rd. So if anything breaking happens after that, we will talk about it next week. All right, let's jump right into that healthcare story. Have here in the studio one of Politico's healthcare reporters, Susanna Luthi. Susanna, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Susanna, you wrote a story a couple of days ago about the Supreme Court's decision not to fast track a new challenge to Obamacare. What, what's the quick version? What happened here? So this was a um, one sentence order that really did nothing but roiled a lot of people. It must be nice having that kind of power. <laughs> yes. So basically, this the coalition of Democratic states led by California Attorney General Javier Becerra and joined by the House of Representatives had asked the Supreme Court to immediately intervene in a very high stakes lawsuit um, to overturn Obamacare and to resolve it once and for all this term, um, you know, before before summer which also means before the election. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to fast track it. So haven't we, haven't we done this already? This feels very back to the future. Like the, the Supreme Court largely upheld Obamacare in 2012. It was a huge story. It happened right before that presidential election, right uh, before Obama was reelected. But it, it turns out more cases have continued to spring up through then through the federal court system, right? That's right. And actually, one of the the argument that the Republican states led by Texas are using to try to kill Obamacare this time is taking one part of one of those rulings um, by Chief Justice John Roberts, which was actually surprisingly uh, teed up for him by Justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was on the appeals court. Um, but basically, the notion that uh, the ACA is constitutional because it's a tax. So if you remember in 2017, uh, when the Republicans, uh, through reconciliation, did their big tax bill, one of the things they did was eliminate but not fully strike the very unpopular individual mandate. That's the tax penalty that you have to pay if you don't opt for ACA-compliant coverage. 
And basically, they zeroed it out, but they didn't actually strike it. So basically, the Republican states are saying, well, there's really no tax anymore, but the Congress didn't actually eliminate, you know, they eliminated it without eliminating it. Therefore, the ACA can't stand because this was one of the, the ways the Affordable Care Act was going to work. Um, According to, to the previous it. Supreme Court yes. ruling. Yes. And so this case bubbled up through Texas. Yes. No one paid attention when um, shortly after, <laughs> I think it was I think it was almost exactly two years ago now. I think it was during a Politico holiday party, actually. Oh, if I'm when the, yes, when it was struck down. <laughs> but the, the actual lawsuit, I think, started two years ago. No one was paying attention. I remember I was at dinner when it happened. But yeah, Texas led a bunch of states saying, okay, now we're going to kill Obamacare this time now that there's no individual mandate penalty. Then no one was really paying attention. And then all of a sudden, when it came time for the Trump administration to weigh in, because they're the government, they're the executive branch, they're supposed to defend Obamacare. All of a sudden, they say, no, we're not going to defend Obamacare. Um, in this case. And in fact, we're going to also say, you know, the pre-existing conditions protections and the insurance regulations should go down because there's no tax penalty to force anyone to buy this coverage. So anyway, so fast forward, we get to a conservative um, Texas judge in a district court in Fort Worth. I was in that courtroom. There are just a handful of us there because um, really no one was paying attention. And during the political holiday party, shortly after that, his ruling comes out saying, yes, the whole thing is is unconstitutional. And then, of course, you know, higher courts put a stay on this ruling because that's that's a big ruling to yes, make. Yes, right? he actually he actually did put a stay on it. He yeah. said, yes, while, while this all gets sorted out. Right, um, right. What, pending you know, higher court review. Yeah. And yeah. So I mean, walk us through. Obviously, there is no immediate impact right at this moment because of that stay that we just talked about. But the impact of this decision would be massive just in, in terms of in terms of healthcare consumers the health insurance industry everything having to do with healthcare absolutely i mean the affordable care act touches pretty much every aspect it's a huge huge bill as we know um Lots of new agencies popped up because of it, um, or not lots of, but a very important one, the, the Innovation Center um, that actually the Trump administration is using to do a lot of um, um, policy experimentation um, came from the Affordable Care Act. Um, and the healthcare industry, I mean, it was really interesting. At first, they're kind of cautious about weighing in on the petition to expedite this case in the Supreme Court because it is seen as a very political, fraught move to get this immediately before the Supreme Court. But some major, I mean, major industry players, all the big hospital associations asked uh, for the Supreme Court to expedite this case and resolve it. And, because um, they crave certainty. They crave, right. let's just get this done with. You know, why prolong? Why delay the angst? And, and of course, the, you mentioned the political impact of all this. And I thought it was really interesting, a little counterintuitive, but I think once you think about it, it makes sense about why Democrats were the ones pushing to, uh, to also to get this over and done with more quickly, to have the Supreme Court review it as quickly as possible. And th- there's a big political angle there. There is a big and big political angle. And as you said, it's counterintuitive. You know, we have the Republican-led states and the Trump administration who, who say the ACA must go, Obamacare must go. It's a terrible law. But, oh, wait, no, don't decide ultimately 
whether it is uh, right right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that can wait. And it, it yes, it has everything to do with politics. So in 2018, obviously, you know, Democrats ran on the ACA's protections of pre-existing conditions and the Republicans wish to rip them all, all away solely on the base of this lawsuit. Obviously, that was before the ruling came out, but um, those of us who were in the Texas courtroom when the arguments took place, it was pretty clear that, um, you know, how the judge was going to go. Um, and also what the position of the Trump administration and what was, the position, Exactly, exactly. So really, the, the political ads wrote themselves in 2018 for um Democrats in this also, remember, followed the very unpopular repeal and replace effort that Republicans right. had launched in 2017. That was, that was a large part of 2017. I could never forget it. We had to re-record so many Nerdcast episodes oh, because sure. votes kept getting canceled and rescheduled. Oh, and... yeah. I, I think I think that's that's how I learned all the secret passageways in Capitol. <laughs> Got to find Dean Heller. But 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 of course, the the you know, the the upshot of a lot of this, a lot of the criticism was that Democrats were directing at Republicans and that they reprised on the campaign trail in 2018 was you want to make all these changes to both unpopular and popular parts of the law. Right. Pre-existing conditions, protection yep. being one of the, the most popular ones yep. without necessarily a set plan to replace it. And. That was when we were talking about a legislative fix, a court fix where a, a, a court is is coming in and potentially striking it down. By definition, does not have a a replacement built in, right? Exactly. And so you can you can see the political upside in a big way there Absolutely. for Democrats in twenty twenty. Absolutely. Um, yes, the case would have huge repercussions. And the other thing that you know people don't really want to say, but there's a solid majority right now. It's believed that um, Chief Justice John Roberts would again vote to uphold uh, the ACA. But what if, you know, Trump wins re-election? What if the makeup of the court changes with more conservative judges? You know, would that change the um, the outcome? So, yes, there is a huge kind of... That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> people don't want to say it, but... Right. You know. But so, like, the longer the longer you wait the longer to hear it, it the, more, the more possibility it is that the makeup of the court changes. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so, yes, I mean, I just spoke with Attorney General Becerra today, just came from there. And he said, yeah, I mean, why why delay? We, we know that the Supreme Court will take it eventually. Why postpone it any further? And I want to say this caveat because this is important. They still they haven't denied hearing the case. So, right. you know, we're now They're on the track. Fast exactly. Okay. So they could hear it next term as soon as next fall. Their next term starts in October. Um, but it wouldn't have the, you know, immediacy for the 2020 elections that I think Democratic strategists hope it will and Republican strategists hope it will not. Got it. And then I, I think the other thing is just Obamacare just doesn't seem to be going away. But with the presidential candidates, including, you know, the top runners include Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They're not talking about the ACA quite as much. You know, they're, they're more, um, they're more in favor of more broad, comprehensive structural changes, um, which the ACA, while it was, um, while it did a lot, it's, um, it's not a huge overhaul of the healthcare system. So it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out along with the messaging on the ACA, depending on who, you know, is the Democratic nominee. Susanna, thank you so much for coming in to walk us through that. That was so interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. 
We're switching gears to the campaign trail for segment two this week because, as I said earlier, we're just about one week out from the Iowa caucuses. Can't you read the excitement on my face, Scott? (laughs) (laughs) Jump on or jump off. (laughs) Joining us on this wild adventure ride is senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Charlie, welcome. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here as always. All right. So, Charlie, we can see the Iowa caucuses coming up in, in front of us in this metaphorical car that we're in right now. The polls are close. And I want to talk about the conflict between two frontrunners that we've seen uh, just kind of burgeoning in the past few weeks. We've been through a lot of conflict cycles this primary. There was uh, Castro versus O'Rourke. There was Biden versus Harris. There was Warren versus Buttigieg. But the one that is, seems like it's going to be taking us through the first election day is Biden versus Sanders. The two frontrunners from a year ago still in position, and they're sparring over Social Security. Charlie, break it down for us. What's going on here? Well, I mean, I think the key word that you used was conflict. It is a conflict. To me, it's almost like a slap fight between them. It's not like a war. They're not going at it with each other. They don't don't hate each other. It's it's the kind of year where um, Democratic voters are just not tolerating those kinds of attacks. And and we see it from the results of all of the conflicts that you mentioned earlier, whether it was Julian Castro uh, taking Beto down a peg or uh, Kamala Harris dropping that bomb on Biden, uh, unexpected in, in, the, in the debate, the Warren-Buttigieg conflict, uh, all of those produced something of a, maybe a sugar high for all the candidates and that you saw in a couple of instances, the polls spiked up a little bit for the, for the aggressor, but then, then they fell down and ultimately, uh, in many of those cases, those candidates got nowhere. So I think the lesson that a lot of candidates have taken from this is that uh, Democratic voters really don't have an appetite and we don't have the kind of deep-seated animosities that maybe we've seen in other primaries on both sides that sort of fuel these kinds of wars between candidates. And uh, I guess, to be clear, both candidates are running uh, in their platforms this year on expanding Social Security. But what Sanders is hitting Biden over is having said in the past, I think the, the word is adjustments, right? There's There's been a lot of talk and, and uh, about you know how to control federal spending over the many, many decades that Joe Biden has been in public office and Bernie Sanders for that matter. And and that in, in the past, uh, Joe Biden has shown openness to, I'm sure he would use a different word, but, but to, you know, capping or, or cutting social security payments. Right. Or slowing the rise, you know, slowing the pace or payroll tax cut holidays, things like that. I mean, uh, there's lots of ways to to describe these things that I think at the broadest level, what's important to know is that Biden was willing over the course of his career to, to whether you call them cuts, whatever you call them, he was willing to entertain proposals that could in some ways uh, be viewed as or could have the effect of cutting social security uh, mainly in the you know under the auspices of of budget austerity. The difference is that these kinds of ideas that Biden was willing to entertain were anathema to progressives like Bernie who were absolutists on the issue and that 's I think you know really the heart of 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 what 's going on here and the the difference in I think biden 's frustration is that um, he believes that the way his record has been portrayed, the idea that he agreed with former House Speaker, Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan is kind of an outrage uh, and, and he has reacted really strongly to that. But to progressives like Bernie Sanders, to them, they don't really make a distinction. If you were willing to entertain cuts, then you were with Paul Ryan. You edited a, a story about this a couple of weeks ago that I thought was really interesting that basically this conflict uh, and and 
Sanders on one side and, and Biden on the other side actually flared about 10 years ago and in a lot of ways led to Bernie Sanders becoming who he is now, a star of, of the national progressive movement as opposed to just kind of a, a lonely old crank senator. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a really interesting history the two have together. It's not like there's this long, bitter history together. But so I was explaining this to, to one of my kids the other day who, who has been following the presidential race and doesn't really know much about the candidates or the background. And so I always try and humanize the the candidates or their disputes to get them to understand it. And the point I was making is like, imagine the Senate is like high school. And so Biden was the quarterback at the time, you know, uh, before he became uh, vice president. So he had been in there for years and years and years. He was the cool kid, the popular kid, the quarterback. And Bernie was the nerd in the back who nobody would talk to. I mean, <laughs> remember when Bernie came into the Senate, it was long after Joe Biden had had joined the Senate. You know, Biden had already run for president when, when Bernie was like uh, – a mayor of a small city with wild white hair, you know, entertaining all these crazy ideas. So he comes into the Senate at where the, the establishmentarians like Biden and the high school quarterbacks, they look down on him because he's a backbencher. He's a believer. He's, uh, you know, Don Quixote in the backbenches who can't pass any legislation uh, and it, because he's an absolutist. But at the same time, you know, they respect him as, as a guy with really strong beliefs. So that's the backdrop for their relationship. And then this is, you know, obviously uh, anything that would affect Social Security uh, is something of great concern to Bernie Sanders. He drew a, a hard, sharp line on this and uh, was very effective in, uh, I think, publicizing his position in, in, in uh, saying this is, you, you know, this was his you shall not pass moment. And it was regarding a, a a last minute spending package that was negotiated between like Senate Republicans and the White House, which was represented by Biden was representing uh, the the Obama administration, right? In, in at the very end of 2010, and there were there were some there was a, a payroll tax cut that was that was being mooted as part of this, and that's and and Sanders saw this as just like a no go. So so we're talking about um, December 2010 at that point, and Biden has left the Senate. And uh, this was when Bernie uh, filibustered the Biden negotiated deal with Republicans that extended Bush era tax cuts, cut the estate tax, uh, and created a temporary Social Security payroll tax cut, or what, what some people called a tax holiday. And uh, keep in mind the political context because this would have been very important to Joe Biden and Barack Obama at the time. Uh, this was right after the November midterm elections where Democrats got killed at the polls. So they're feeling like they're in a very precarious position. Biden and Obama are leading this party that just got destroyed at the polls. And so they need to show that they, you know, they're, they're reasonable centrists and they're, they're serious about deficit reduction. Uh, but you can imagine Bernie's response. You know, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that the National Party just got killed because, you know, he's from Vermont. You know, nobody got killed in Vermont. You know, so, so the, the, the political implications of what had just happened were not as strong to him. And as an absolutist, he did not want to entertain any of it. And the best part of that, we, we had a quote in the story, and it was a, a really interesting story by uh, Mark Caputo, who covers Joe Biden for us. And uh, I still remember the, the, the quote, which was from a senior advisor to, to Sanders, who said, uh, after Biden, he describes how Biden briefs the Democratic caucus about the plan and Sanders' advisor tells Mark, you can see Bernie sitting there listening to that and his blood starting to boil. And and of course, you know, so he gives this filibuster. The filibuster they actually end up publishing as a book. Um, and and the, the folks around Sanders feel like this is what kind of launched him on the pathway to eventually running for president in 2016, obviously became a huge star now running for president again in 2020. And here he and Joe Biden are again 
litigating this argument uh, with just days to go before the Iowa caucuses. I do think it's interesting, as you brought up at the beginning, Charlie, that you know, despite the the conflict between them, uh, no, there there has not been a single negative TV ad in the Democratic primary yet. And, and you know, we've got what ten, eleven. Not very many days left until the Iowa caucuses. I'm sure it'll still happen at some point. But I think that speaks to how how close and tightly packed things are. Yeah, and it's also the slap fight aspect of it. And keep in mind all the politicians that are in this um, uh, – in, in the Democratic primary that are still left, the, 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 the top tier candidates, they didn't – their reputations aren't built on being sharp-elbowed attackers. They're not attack dogs. They're, they're, they, they did not get to where they were by going to war with their opponents the whole time, uh, whether it was Bernie in Vermont or whether it was Biden in Delaware. Same thing with Elizabeth Warren. These are, these are folks that uh, you know, didn't have the, the kind of – you know, the, the kind of bare-knuckled fights that many other senators have gone through to, to forge their, pers- their political uh, persona. So there's that. They also know that Democrats in the Trump era do not want to deal with any of any democratic on democratic violence. And uh, I think they want to project a more positive message uh, through their television advertising. Yeah, those are all great points, Charlie. I, I agree with all of them. I actually there's something else I've been thinking about recently, too, which is that, you know, we're 16 years on now from the 2004 presidential race. You've got a ton of strategists and operatives working in all these campaigns who who maybe they had their first job or that was the first campaign, presidential campaign they really paid attention to or, you know, their political awakening came and watching the two front runners in Iowa, Howard Dean and Dick Gebhardt, absolutely destroy each other and then get surpassed by the other two main candidates, John Kerry, of course, who won the nomination and John Edwards. In 2004. In 2004. I wonder if that has just scarred everyone mentally and and the the ghosts of that are are looming over everyone who's making these decisions who'd be in a position to run a negative ad you know heading heading into Iowa at least and they're just they can't stop thinking about how both of those guys plummeted and and let someone else come in and, and take the nomination I love that theory I want to steal it and put it in the story well Charlie thanks for joining us to Walk us through it. You're going to Iowa soon, right, for the stretch run? I am. I'm what are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to most? The weather? Uh, the weather, uh, the the flatness. Uh, no, I'm I'm just kidding. I actually love Iowa. Yeah, Iowa's fantastic. It's yeah. so it's so underrated. I love Des Moines, uh, I, I, and I'm not even kidding. Like I, I love I know, Des Moines. I know it. I've been there uh, a million times, and it's just it's always great that the people take it so seriously. It's just super cool uh, how seriously they take their civic responsibility and like the pork. Um, the pork products are just amazing. Like you can get <laughs> pork anything and it's all outstanding. It's just I'm, I'm a huge fan of Iowa. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be there for a week. But uh, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to it. Excellent. All right. Well, have a good time on the trail. Thanks. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. All right. That's our show this week. Our producer for this episode is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cook. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk again next week.